So this is episode five of Fargo TV, of Fargo on Fargo FX. This is Fargo TV, the podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Mike. Uh, so this is episode five, the six ungraspables. What did you think of the show? Um, I liked it. I thought it answered a lot of questions. Um, I thought it gave us some more questions. I thought it was pretty... Um, I can't believe we're half over already, but um, I thought it was good. Yeah, they asked a lot of questions in a religious context that are unanswerable that make you think, kind of the parable format, which was pretty cool. Yeah, some of that stuff, like like the six ungraspables, did you, um, were you able to find stuff on that? Um, just in general, that it's that it's the five senses and the mind are the six six ungraspables. Yeah, that's all I found about it too. That was all I could find that really encompassed anything that seemed like what we were talking about. And then it mentioned, you know, there were several different places where there was ungraspables mentioned, but not specifically the six. Yeah, I think a lot of it's just to do with. Life having questions that are hard to find answers to. So you just got to kind of do your best. Yeah. Um, I think as far as the show goes, it's at an interesting point because it's hard to keep pulling off. It's hard to pull off a show and keep it interesting when we know we as the audience know more than the characters because we're kind of waiting for them to catch up. Yeah. And it seems like at this point that the final act has kind of started, like everything's set, set up, everything's like set in motion. And now the final resolution is about to happen in these, this last half of the season. Yeah, but I think they're able to keep it still. I think they've done a great job still of keeping it um, interesting and thought provoking throughout the whole thing, even though we do know more about the different characters. I think that the way they unveil the knowledge and stuff is really, um, I don't know, it, it, it keeps me hooked. Did you like it? Yeah, I really did, because it was very philosophical. I'm kind of into that stuff. It, it seems like we're in a total biblical world here in this story, and there's tons of philosophy and symbolism, and, you know, Lauren's kind of looking like a snake, and there's art all, all around him and then all these questions and um it just it's just really interesting to me yeah i think so too it starts out with a lot of cool art art arty looking scenery with that beautiful wheat field which is kind of a change up from what we've been used to seeing in the beginnings which is this bleak frozen cold looking area of minnesota or fargo north dakota whatever but it looked really sweet and nice with this beautiful wheat field but then we find out why yeah so you want to go into what happened well yeah i mean you mentioned when it starts out it's uh the wheat like the wheat field and it's dead and it's beautiful and they've got this folksy banjo like music playing and then of course we find out that that's it's a flashback Okay, so um, Lester's evidently looking, he needs some socks, and he went to buy some socks. And didn't you think that was funny on the table where it was set up? It was like irregular socks, and um, it said best offer. 
or something. And like you went up and you made an offer on what you wanted to pay for this product. Have you ever had that experience in a store? Well, like maybe a flea market or something. I thought that was really weird, though, because, you know, he goes up and he says he, I don't know, it was very telling. He doesn't want to insult the guy by offering too little. He asks why the socks are irregular. He says there's a, there's a woman's sock mixed in with it or something. Is yeah. there a difference in a man? I guess there's a difference in maybe size or something, but in a man's and a woman's sock. I don't know. The whole thing was just bizarre. Um, well, it's really, it's the whole religious philosophy being you know, we're introduced to it right off the very bat. Like, which which sock is which? It's unclear. <laughs> like, it's mysterious. You know, you have to figure it out. And then even the even their negotiation is like a religious lesson. Like, how much do they cost? Well, how much do you think they? You know, he's negotiating smartly, but he's meant he's not mentioning a number first. He's making the other guy Lester mention the number first. But it's also it's a it's a cone you know it's an unanswerable what do you think the price should be you know it's like this religious theme just continues into this um and then remember when we talked about the harvard inbox yeah uh-huh this he kind of employs the harvard inbox on him he's like well it's not a million dollars you know it's not worth a million dollars <laughs> well it's not worth zero so some what's what is it in between you know he kind of works him that way which I just thought was really interesting. It was way more than just a guy buying a pack of socks. Yeah, but then they took it straight into the shotgun. You know, he's got a shotgun. And why on earth would a person going in to buy a pair of socks end up buying the shotgun? It was just such a odd encounter. And we're, we're, we're to believe that Lester, that's how he acquired this gun. Why on earth would somebody um, buy a shotgun? I know it's 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 pretty cool though how they did it, but that shows how Lester got his gun. And this was actually a double flashback because it shows Lester getting the gun, and then that wasn't the same day of the crime. That was like a flashback before the crime, sometime. Right. right. And so we get we get like a double l- layered flashback. Right. Did you notice that the that the bullets when he he brings the gun home and Pearl's there and oh Pearl she's being her Pearl self and um, she's belittling to him. I think too that it was to remind us how bad she was. You needed to be reminded. I really didn't need to be reminded, but seeing it again really did bring it back to me. And then immediately after that, after she makes the derogatory comment to him about the gun, he drops the gun as if to, almost as if to um, give reason for her nagging. It's like, well, we can see why she would have the opinions that she does on Lester. I don't know. I, I thought it was great how they put all that together that we were reminded how bad she was, and then we were immediately reminded that she probably had reason for her feelings, if not for her harsh words so much. Yeah, I don't know. She married the guy. She knew who he was. You know, he, she just she she didn't have to be that mean. She could have no. she could have left him or whatever. She just stayed. She just like relished in being bitchy to him. Did you notice that the bullets were called pinhead? 
Yeah. I actually meant to look that up. Is that a real kind of bullet? I have no idea. I don't know either, but it was funny to see him sitting there with the package in front of him at the table with the word pinhead on it. Yeah. Just like everything in his life is just negative and derogatory. Yeah. So we see that that double tiered flashback kind of meshes into the crime. Right. Right. It shows Lester uh, where he was um, going to set Malvo up for killing his wife when he called Malvo to come over. And it goes through that whole scene again. And um, and then we see Malvo actually walking into his house and how he did get a hold of the gun. When, when I think before we just saw Malvo standing there with a the gun and we got to see that whole scene at this point. Very uh, Cohen-esque, didn't you think? The way they showed the shot and the buckshot flying from the gun, the explosion, the fire, going through uh, Vern, yeah, exiting I, Vern, yeah. I thought it was cool when we saw Lauren kind of in the house getting the gun. Yeah. And I thought, wow, we're going to get to see how he got out of the house at the end of this, but we didn't get to see that. No. And then when you just said Cohen-esque, it made me think of the word, the you know, the the cones for parables cohen and the cones that's that just kind of clicked <laughs> oh i didn't think of that either yeah that's funny spelled differently obviously but so yeah we see the pellets in their path and the pellets kind of uh the path of the pellets lead to the path of um lester ending up in the jail cell yeah yeah we see uh, the pellet go into his hand and his hand fester and get worse and worse. And then we see his hand and it brings us into real time as he's sitting in his jail cell with Numbers and Ranch. And man, he looks sick at this point. Numbers is talking to him and saying how he had mentioned a guy and that he had said the word him when they had him on the ice, and they want to know who that is. Do you think at this point that's because they're going to let him be and they just want to find out who it is you seriously i want to ask that question they don't let anyone be even if they're totally not related to the thing they're after well i don't know if they'd go back for him though do you think they would they will they would i mean go back for lester well yeah because he escaped and i'm just curious if they're going to go to the trouble they know he's not the one yeah, but they knew that other guy wasn't the one, too. They're cleaning yeah. up all evidence behind him. They're going to, sure, they're going to kill him. They're going to, you know, they're not going to get their answer and let him go on. He knows everything about them. He does. I mean, but he hasn't said anything yet. They know, though. <laughs> they know. I mean, they're yeah. catching up to what we know. That They're, they're on to him, and they're not going to let him off the hook. Well, I don't think Lester had much choice in... Um and giving up the information. What do you think? Well, he was being painfully tortured. Yeah, that was horrible. So they sock torture him. It's the second sock of reference we see. Yeah, I noticed. They put the sock in his mouth to keep him quiet. But And then we hear the washing machine. It's, again, with Lester. Yeah, I did notice it this time. I had went back and watched it last time after we had talked about it. And 
of course, notice the uh, the thump thump of the washing machine that we hear. And in this one, does it seem to be getting louder to yeah, you? Yeah, it's way more apparent now. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty bad. And then, of course, you know, he tells Lester not to throw up, and I think I would have thrown up just from that sock in my mouth. That was pretty... I mean, he took it off his foot. That was pretty gross. Yeah. Well, that's where but, you find a sock, right? Well, I guess. <laughs> I wish he would have had it in his pocket or something. Um, but then they ask him where Malvo can be found. And this is where Lester says that he took his car and ended up in, uh, that his car ended up in a, in a impound in Duluth. So, um, the jailer comes and he says that the two can go and, uh, they say, what if they don't want to go? And he laughs and they leave and then Lester throws up. That was that was bad. It shows how Lester is so affected by fear that he won't throw up. <laughs> he can physically stop himself from throwing up to avoid the pain of these guys torturing him. Yeah. I think he believed that Numbers was going to kill him if he did. Well, Numbers he said he would kill probably, him. Probably would have. Probably would have. <laughs> so in the next scene we see Molly listening to some show about how snakes are predators and, you know, that's our reference to snakes again and predators. And we kind of, in, back in our discussion of the first scene, we talked about Lorne, how he got into the house and got the gun. And the way he could have gotten out of the house in the basement is if he was some sort of reptile or snake and he just wiggled through some small opening. Um, <laughs> yeah. That made me think of that. Like, because he's, he's something evil, like like a snake or, a, you know, black smoke or something that can escape through a small opening. But that, that made me think of that when we saw Molly listening to that documentary or whatever she was watching on TV. I hope they do show us eventually how he got out of there. I'm afraid they're not going to. And I want to know. So she finally convince, convinces Oswald. She's like has this revelation or this this enlightenment that I got to got to do this. I got to buck up and go talk to him directly. And they um, they decide that they should talk to Lester even over Stormwatch 86. What do you 96? Oh, 2006, whatever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, what do you think was different in her in her what compelled him to listen to her at this point? Because I couldn't really find any more evidence in what she was saying now and what she had told him before. Yeah, but she has more evidence. She, she connects like that. The fact that there, she gives him more specific details about being in the hospital together and all that stuff. And um, I, he can't ignore it anymore. If he kept ignoring it, it would have just totally I mean, he's a joke as it is. It would have made the whole plot fall apart. You can't have a, even a dopey chief like that, you can't have him just ignoring every single piece of evidence. Well, Rob, and and she also points out, and I don't know if we've heard this before, but uh, Hess had told the stripper about breaking a guy's nose that day before he was killed. And I don't know if we had heard that before. Yeah. That he had bragged about breaking a guy's nose, and so she put that together with Lester, I think. Yeah. But anyway, I thought that was the most compelling piece of evidence that, that she said as far as circumstantially implicating Lester in something going on with Hess, but... Still, I mean, the way Bill was with everything, I wasn't sure. Yeah, and Lester keeps popping up in these, like, 
probably Lester's this benign guy that never popped up anywhere before all this stuff happened. And now he's in the jail cell. And it's pretty hard to ignore that he's popping up so much in this investigation of this crime. Well, right. Right. Aside from the fact that his wife was murdered that day, too, and, and the chief was murdered in his home. So, yeah, he just seems to be tied into all of it. So then we go um, into the next scene, and it's uh, Gus's apartment, and the mitzvah truck tank thing is outside again. Yeah, that well, that's the guy. That's the neighbor. Oh, is that him? It's got to be. That's his... I didn't know that. Well, I don't know it either, but it's got to be him. He's too he's too philosophical. So what you think he's like a rabbi or something? Is I think he's some sort of a Jewish, you know, um, minister or rabbi. Maybe not exactly a official rabbi, but like a uh, I don't know, an elder of some kind. Some sort of a some sort of a guy helping people understand the Jewish philosophy, Jewish religion. I think. Okay, I didn't, I still hadn't gathered that from that. But that would make sense while we're seeing the truck all the time, the tank parked um, there. But Gus goes into Greta's room and he has her pull up some stuff on Frank Peterson. And what'd you think when that picture came up? Well, first of all, I thought, wow, they have one only one computer in their house and it's Greta's computer in her room. <laughs> um, I guess that says something about 2006, but... And that she's kind of the computer savvy person, and Gus is kind of the the luddite. But um, it looked it looked kind of hacked. The picture of of um, Lauren in the church outfit. Yeah, but it really shows how far they went in this, uh, you know, deception. Yeah, but that's pretty easy to do. Slap a picture into a website. Well, I guess it is, but I mean, the church is uh, is real, we assume, right? I mean, there's pictures of the building and stuff, so I mean... Yeah, but people hack into Target and steal 8,000 million credit card numbers. You could hack okay. into a... <laughs> you could point. hack into a rural church's website, I think, pretty, pretty easy. But Gus starts going into um, wondering why he was still in town, why he stayed in town after he stopped him and why he was on that particular road. And um, he starts really thinking about that when he ran into him close to Stavros' house. Yeah, he very um, almost simple-mindedly like just chants out the sequence of things that he discovered. Right. Right, like it's really playing on him. It suddenly uh, occurs to him. So um, then we go to the guy that's in a liquor van. Yeah, but before we leave okay. Gus and Greta, how, what did you think about how does Gus come and go at all hours of the night with Greta there at home alone? Like he says to her before the scene ends, he says, well, I may go out a bit. I may go out for a bit. He just leaves her there alone in that apartment. Yeah, she's 12. You can leave a 12-year-old alone in the middle of the night? Yeah, uh, 12 year olds are, I believe, I think it varies by state, but I believe a 12 year old's even old enough to babysit. So a 12 year old can stay with a younger sibling, even. Um, I think varying by state that the average age that you, I don't know if it's average, but, you know, even at 10, 
you can leave kids at home alone. All right. Well, that seems too young for me. Yeah, that's pretty young. I agree. I don't know that I would do it, but I think by law, it's okay to do that. Um, certainly in some places, unless things have changed. But yeah. Well, there and are there are snakes and wolves about, so I wouldn't do it. Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, okay, so the guy pulls up in the liquor van that we assume is the same drug van, right? The one he bought the drugs out of the back, and now it's the guy with um, scanners. Is it, was it the same guy? I think so, yeah. And we saw the back of it last time. Remember the zombie bag guy? Yeah. Because because he talks about um, about Malvo coming back to him and stuff, and it looked like the same guy. I didn't go back and actually double-check, but I think it was him. And um, this is where he has a pink police scanner. <laughs> Malvo says, do I look like the kind of guy who would want a pink police scanner? Right, that was funny. It was good because, I mean, he's the opposite of that. Um, did you notice inside he was selling, like, maybe TVs or surveillance something and there was, like, wolves playing? They weren't playing. They were, like, killing and dragging well, off something that they just were about to eat. Right. Well, <laughs> not right. Not not. Pl- I meant playing, like, playing on the TV, showing. Oh, yeah. Showing yeah. On, on the television. So that was another another wolf reference we get there. Um, but he takes a regular scanner, and then he wants the walkie-talkie, and he only wants one. Because he doesn't was, have any friends. He doesn't have any friends. And um, he says, uh, the guy says he can't just sell him one. And uh, Malvo was kind of even threatening to him, don't you think? He said, do you want to take the other so you can hear the stuff he does to people. Yeah, we never yeah. see Malvo get outwit, outwitted in a conversation. And this guy was pretty s- sharp. He was he had some pretty good comebacks and, you know, maybe I'll be your friend. And so Malvo says, well, so you can listen to me do some black things or dark things on my end of the conversation. He, and he does. He shuts the guy up. Yeah, well, that would shut He He has a pretty uncanny ability to shut people up so um malvo gets his new scanner and goes over and sees don oh my gosh yeah and he goes in with his little recording device and it actually shows how easy that was to use the phone and record remember we talked about that earlier how easy would that be to record but it looked like just a little thing that he hooked up to the phone it didn't look hard at all yeah, but, it just uh, it just kind of it just sticks to the back. I've seen them before. It sticks to the back of the phone, and it just you know, I don't know if it gets it by vibration or how, but it just gets the sound from it by yeah. sticking to the back of the handset. I had never seen anything like that, but it was pretty neat, and it, he showed it the actual recorder with the tape on it sitting on top of all the other tapes. Yeah, did you notice some of the labels that he had already set up from from before? Like uh, you could no. you could barely read them because it went by really fast. But one of them ended in Anko, like Shemenko or you know Wally, the Ooh. the hockey guy. Another one ended in G I L L. And I looked on um, I looked on IMDb to see who the character Gill was, but I couldn't find anyone. But there are a couple names, probably from other jobs that he's had before. Ooh, that's interesting. And of course, Lester was one of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Like the last one there on the on the bottom, I, I know it was like this. This isn't Malvo's first time doing this, and um, but 
what about that whole interaction between Malvo and and Don? Yeah, well, it, oh, well, Malvo and Don. I thought you were going to say Malvo and Stavros. Well, yeah, with Stavros, first of all, he's talking to him about um, Stavros has decided he's going to pay because he has broken a promise that shouldn't have been broken. And uh, the last of the plagues is kind of, you know, going on about the last that the 10 plagues have been, you know, brought down on him. And the last of the plagues is the death of the firstborn. And uh, Sminko is taking Dimitri to a safe place. And he asks Malvo if he thinks he's crazy. And Malvo says a man's only as good as the promises he keeps. Yeah. So they also open their conversation where Staros asks where he was, and he's and Malvo says, I was out hunting. I was hunting. Another wolf reference, I think. Ooh, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, so they go through all that, and and he, he's going to pay the blackmail. And so Chump is just like silly happy to hear all this. Yeah, he can't believe it. And he's already spending the money that he thinks he's going to get. Okay, do you think. Malvo's going to give him any money. What do you think, Michelle? I don't know. I don't know because I don't think Malvo is, is uh, I don't think he's motivated by money. Malvo, I don't think- Malvo has totally set up Chump, if you think about it. You know, he made him into the plumber and he made him into the pet store. He made him go to three pet stores. He made him take a phone call. So he's totally like set him up. He's linked him into all these crimes. If anything happens to Stavros, it's going to look like Chump did it. He's setting Chump up for the fall. Yeah, I can. He may give him the money to complete the prosecution of him, but he's setting, he's not helping Chump. He's setting him up. Well, no, no. I don't think anybody could say he's helping him. He's manipulating him, certainly. Caught him in a position that he was able well, of course he's able to manipulate everybody easily anyway but he caught him in a position who was easily able to manipulate him and um but I just wondered because I didn't know before this that he had even I thought he was kind of blackmailing him I didn't know he was just getting him to go along with the blackmail as far as you'll still get your money and I'll take the rest and it was just kind of an odd thing because he could have gotten Chump to do it, I think, either way, just by saying, I'll turn you in or whatever for having done this. I'll let him know you did this. And uh, you would think Stavros wouldn't be a man you'd want to mess with in that way. And But but he didn't use that tactic with, with Don. He used the tactic of, you'll still get yours and I'll just get more. I think, and I thought that was interesting. About I think it. Chump is the replacement for for Malvo. So the police come to figure this all out. They're going to catch Chump and then they don't need to look for Malvo because Chump is Chump did the plumber, you know, he did all these things Malvo set him up to do. Um we also found out find out now that Chump was the guy in that voice ma- right. manipulating thing, like the right. Darth Vader voice. Yeah, because so, he wants to do it again. So that's traceable somehow back to him. It's probably coming from his home phone number. You know, it's probably it's probably another link to Chump where Malvo just steps out of the criminal role and Chump steps into it and Malvo's going to be scot-free because of it. Right. 
I mean, not that Malvo has ever really seemed to care about that before, though. It's like, that's never... I mean, he just walks into office buildings, even though he's going to be on video and pulls people out. It's not like he goes to a lot of trouble to cover his tracks, but but you're right. He certainly is giving himself some plausible deniability with, uh, with Chump in this situation because Chump is... And what about Chump then? He just walks into the pantry. I mean, he's just so dingy. He yeah. just doesn't have any, I don't know. Hey, did you know this was locked? Yeah. Did you notice that, yeah, that that you locked me in here? And you're like, what? So Lester has, we see Lester in the ambulance now, and he's, he's got some creepy, creepy flashbacks going. Yeah, that was that was one of the, you know, they played that music, that kind of noise, that kind of like zap back noise or something it was horrible. And the scenes that he saw and stuff. And it was funny to me that he saw his wife and he saw Vern and then he saw and I'm talking about dead. He saw him dead or dying or being shot or whatever in his little zaps of uh, of memory. And then he saw Malvo's face. So it's like he was equating Malvo's face with his dead wife's bashed-in skull as far as the hideousness of it. Yeah, it was like the ring where you see the girl on the TV. She gets a little closer, then it zaps, and she jumps ahead a little bit closer. It was like it was like horror horror movie stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so so Lester is on the bench in the cell, and he's uh, delirious and he's mumbling stuff. And I. You know, I caught, uh, you bought me the tie. He's saying stuff like that at this point. So it was. Yeah, that de- being delirious like that was like truth serum for Molly. She was just using it to get more info from him. Yeah. What did you think about that? What well, did you think about her asking under those circumstances? Well, I thought it was super smart. Is it? Is it ethical? Sure. Okay. She wasn't hurting him or anything. No, but she's asking him questions when he's in a situation. It's almost like giving somebody some kind of medication. You know, they give people, or on 24, <laughs> they give people this medication. It's like a truth serum or something, and they can't help but, t- but but say the truth. But you wonder if that stuff, it would never be admissible in court, no matter what he said, I wouldn't think, because he was septic, the doctor says, and he was delirious and talking out of his head. Yeah, it's, you know, ethical. It's probably not ethical if you want to get down to that, but it's practical. It's a very good way to get that information. I think we're starting to see Molly breaking bad a little bit, too, here. Well, that's what I was wondering, because we see her follow the letter of the law so precisely up until this point, And then we see this, and I just kind of wondered if that would be the situation that you would be asking somebody questions in. But Lester says um, she asked him if he paid to have Sam Hess killed, and he said he never paid. He never paid, and he goes on about that. And um, then, of course, they pull him out of the ambulance, and... Um, that's the end of that. Yeah, there's one thing connected to that that I caught on the second watching. And that's when Molly ends up later on in the episode. She goes and checks out the washing machine. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wondered at the time, like, why did she check out the washing machine? What reason? But that was one other thing that Lester said in the ambulance. He says, that's the towel sound. She's washing towels. Which had, right. Which had no, you know, what what the hell? Why would you say that? 
you know, in a, in a delirious state, unless it was important to you. Well, right. Well, right. Because he was saying in the jail, so you bought me the tie. So he was obviously having these conversations about his, I mean, not obviously maybe to her, but to us that he was having these conversations about his wife and kind of defending his position. And then, yeah, I had to go back and listen to that too, because when she walked down to the basement and she was going through that, I thought, okay, what would make her do this? You know, what would make her do this? And I went back and watched that. And he did mumble about, um, about the, the thumping sound, the sound of her washing the towels. Right. And And, and that's the sound he hears all the time, all the time, all the time. So we, so I guess we kind of learned that we don't just hear that as viewers. He hears that in his head. I think that's what that means. I think so too. I think he's kind of living with that. And I think that's his, his guilt and and his, uh, his torture, his telltale heart. Yeah. Yeah. So then we see some strange guy bringing a file over in the dark of the night to uh, Lauren or to, to Lauren's file over to numbers and wrench. Yeah. They're sitting in a car and this is a policeman. He has a badge on. He He's some kind of authority. Yeah. Looks like, yeah. And, uh, he just gives them the file. I didn't recognize the guy. I don't know if we're supposed to know who that was or not, but I didn't know who he was. Did you? Well, we didn't ever see his face. Did we? Yeah. They kind of panned away and we saw him from a distance, but, um, it wasn't anybody, and, and I didn't recognize the voice or anything, so I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to know who that is, but I think what that's trying to probably show us, though, is that Numbers and Wrench, whoever they're working for, has got a lot of connections. This isn't just a fly-by-night kind of thing. If you have people from the police department supplying you with that kind of information. Yeah, that's pretty big. And then we had we heard another of of Lauren's subtle jingle bells, but they were a little less subtle this time. Oh, I didn't I didn't hear that then. The sleigh bells, yeah. 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 Okay, so then we go to Gus and he's up in the middle of the night and he's having some warm milk and this is where he sees the neighbor. Okay, this is the naked woman's husband. Is that right? The yeah, one Yeah, this is the him. this is that guy with all the Jewish philosophy. Right. I don't think he's right. a rabbi technically. I don't think rabbis can rabbis have families? Yeah. Well, maybe he is then, but yeah, he sees him across the way. And um, he raises his window and he um, starts saying he's got two kids and a wife and the wife thinks he's loud and this is his time. And then he says, you know, I'll, I'll come over. So, so what do you think is the meaning of the, what is the meaning of, <laughs> of the temptation of his wife flashing her underwear to Gus earlier on? Um, I don't know. I don't know if she, if it's just, he's talking about the hardships of his life, the cold, the, the holes in his socks that his oldest kid needs braces. And he goes on like that. And I don't know if this is like another hardship of his life that we get to see that maybe he doesn't even know about yet because this show's kind of known for showing us things that the characters don't know. Um, I couldn't really put anything else together. I I wondered if Gus didn't have some kind of guilt, maybe, over that, too, as he was having this conversation with him. Yeah, it's another chance for a pretty cool parable, I think, where he says, I've got 
it's cold. I've got holes in my socks and I do have my children. And he goes, but they're all gifts. They're gifts. And Gus says, your, ch- your children are gifts. And he goes, no, all of it are, all of it is gifts. All of it are gifts. So yeah, yeah it was pretty, was, pretty philosophical yeah. that and it's kind of a Zen thing, a Buddhist thing that you welcome problems because then that shows you that, that you have the ability to overcome them. And that in and of, in and of itself is a gift. The problems teach you that you are living in a gift. You know, everything's a gift. Right. Yeah. I thought that was, uh, it really is a neat way to look at life when you're able to, uh, to master things like that. But, um, probably pretty difficult for most of us in the overall scheme. But, um, Gus says that he has a question and it's, at first he says it's a spiritual question and he says it's like an ethical question. He can't really pinpoint the kind of question he has, but then he goes into, he knows someone's committed a crime, but he can't prove it. And the neighbor says, well, you have to prove it. And then Gus goes into his whole dilemma that he's got Greta and he's not a detective. And then he kind of throws in Molly, which of course this guy isn't going to know from anybody, but he's talking about how wonderful Molly is. He's kind of rambling on about it and that he didn't know how far he should go. What's his obligation? Well, and he's then, also questioning his ability. Like I Mo- think so too. Molly's yeah. sharp. Molly's sharper than me, better than me. I'm not as good. I'm not a good detective. I'm no detective. So, it, so this guy, this rabbi slash philosophical guy, sees that Gus is questioning his his abilities, his you know his value in life, his worth. And then he goes into that parable. And he actually says, it's a parable. I'm telling you a parable here. Yeah. I thought that was a good one. What did you think about that? Um, it's a good parable. It's a good scene, too, because I think Gus maybe would have just been confused if he had not told him, like, this is a parable. It's a, it's a it references a way to think about something. And um, that it's not an answer for Gus. It's a question for Gus. And it makes him think. It's kind of like the cones are... They're not answers, they're questions. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You're like, what? That's, that, that doesn't make sense. But it makes you think, like, what does that mean? And in right. the process of trying to figure it out, then you have some sort of enlightenment. But yeah, he gets. I guess he gets Gus to think, you can't ever give enough, but giving a little bit is enough. You, you have to try. You, know, you, you can't you can't fix everything, but you got to take care of yourself. And that Lester, that's the opposite of Lester. Lester doesn't try at all to fix anything. He just lets all this shit happen to him. Yeah, I I couldn't really tell what what the rabbi guy was saying either. I mean, I couldn't tell because I think he wanted Gus to figure it out for himself, which is kind of what what you just said about about how the parable makes more questions maybe then it gives answers but he's you know he says only a fool thinks he can solve the world's problems and you know Gus says but we have to try you know and the guy asked him did it work you know or or Gus asked him if it worked if the guy solved you know problems and the rabbi guy says well you're you're living in the world did it and so Gus says well no and he goes well didn't it you know, because it solved problems for who it solved problems for, but it just didn't solve everybody's problem. So I guess what he's telling Gus, what I heard him tell Gus was you have to solve what you can solve 
that's still going to allow you to go on and be able to continue your good works. But that's yeah, it's I, that it's that unresolvable s- statement that like you can't do everything, but a little bit is everything. To to whom it is everything, it is right. It's um. You know, you can't maybe make a difference to everybody, but the people that you can make a difference to, you can make a big difference to. But I think that's the point, that it really is everything. Right. Not just to whomever it matters to. It That's what it is. It, that's the lesson. It is everything. Everything is impossible, but a little is everything. It's hard to even think, you know, it's hard to even resolve it when I say it, but that's what I think it means. Okay, I can see that. I can see, I think, where that where that goes. I also like how this guy looks just like Gus. When they switch back and forth and they're on the opposite sides of the table, <laughs> they're in opposite apartments exactly like each other, they're drinking the exact same drink in the exact same glass. It's like, it's like Gus and himself. Do we, do we even get this guy's name? Does he even have a name? Not that, uh, not that they show, no. So I think it's kind of like a mirror. It's like Gus talking to himself in the mirror almost. Oh, that's, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I didn't, I didn't get that before, but I, I like that. Because, yeah, it's almost like he's figuring things out, kind of questioning a wise him. Maybe. Like it wouldn't surprise me if we find out that that guy isn't even real. That it's just a woman in the apartment across the way. But I don't know. We don't know that. But that's that's just kind of a wild guess. Yeah, that, that would be crazy. So then we see Gus is in bed and he's trying to sleep and he can't sleep and he gets up and he's just done. So he gets up and he leaves and we see him driving in the dark. And at the same time, it goes to Malvo and Stavros and they're driving it looks like um, in the pre-dawn hours, and Malvo's driving Stavros to the Phoenix Farm, his store, to get the money. Um, Stavros tells him to leave the car running. He goes in, and he's getting the money out, and Dimitri comes in. And this is where we find out Dimitri's not completely an idiot. Dimitri has tried to look at things to find out what's going on, where Stavros is so far into his uh, feeling of being punished that he can't maybe see things as they actually are. He's not even bothering to look at more, uh, you know, more, I don't know, normal things that could have caused what happened, more likely maybe things that could have caused what happened. More earthly, yeah. Earthly, perfect, yeah. So um, the, the thing I noticed with that is that Starros is putting the money back into the exact same case that Steve Buscemi left in the movie Fargo. Oh, did and he? It made me wonder, is this money just going to get put somewhere and lost again and, you know, buried for the next, you know, lesson learner to find it and pick it up? Um, that the money is truly like... I know it got Stavros his fortune and his nice house and his supermarket empire, but it is kind of a it is kind of a symbol that isn't ever really used up. It's just kind of a thing that that this evil and good revolve around to try to give us these lessons. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if they drop it off somewhere or it gets lost or 
Lauren just leaves it and doesn't care, and it's just left there for the next person to learn from. And maybe even for them to do more TV on. Maybe. That would be pretty cool if there was like a continuation of the destruction of people's lives that had uh, contact with this money. That's yeah. great. Unear- I, an unearned fortune. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice that it was the same case until you just said that. And when you said it, it was like, yeah, that was that case. So that would be really good, particularly since he took it and he's going to, you know, do something with it. And we don't even know what yet, but that's interesting. And just the fact that he kept that case 20 years later, you know, you'd think he'd put the money somewhere, launder it, and destroy that case just in case anyone ever found him. Or, But it's the same suitcase. He puts it back in there. I wonder why he did. And he's kept the same because I mean, he, took, he takes every dollar out of his, out of his safe. So he's, he's still got the million dollars in there. So he would have had to have spent some of that money to have earned his fortune and then just replaced the money in there and kind of kept it there. So that's, I'm kind of forming this opinion because I hadn't thought about it like this. I'm kind of talking as I'm forming it, but, but that would be really, really interesting if, this money then goes on to mean something else because he kept the exact amount in there. He took every dollar. Yeah, out. I think he keeps. I think Stavros is keeping that one million dollars, uh, one million dollars in his <laughs> in his safe as a symbol. Like this is my s- sign from God, and I'm keeping it. Even if it's not the exact, you know, he took some money, obviously, like he said, and started his business. Right. But he replaced it back to its $1 million state and put it in the safe. And that's the symbol he got or the gift slash curse he got. And he's um, he's ready to move it along into the next part of this plot. But it still wouldn't cause him to be broke, assuming, no. assumingly. You know, I mean, he still has his fortunes and has what he has and has his business. But that chunk of money is still sitting there. I love that. I think that has so much potential. So we see Molly at the hospital and we learn, I learn a little bit more, I guess we all learned if we pay attention to it, but this is all take had taken place in the time frame of a week. Cause the doctor says, Lester's been here three times in the past week. And so that's the whole framework of the whole story. This is all happened yeah. in one week. I've always said this is so quick. I mean, we have really had this happening so fast. And it kind of makes sense as far as Lester's wound and stuff. Because that's what you would expect to see after that amount of time and everything. But some of the other things were harder to view as just a week going by. Yeah, it's just interesting because we've been watching for a month and a half. (laughs) This is only a week. So the doctor comes up and he starts talking about having to clean out the wound and what he did and everything and that it was shotgun material and there was, or a shotgun with, with some other material and, um, and that the shot must have went through something. And uh, Molly or someone just, or someone she kind of mumbled. I know she's just sick about it. And then they find out that Ida's there and she's had baby Bernadette. So Molly's all happy about that and everything. They're all tickled that the baby's been born but i thought wasn't she only supposed to be like seven months pregnant last week 
Oh, I have no idea. I didn't pay any attention to that at all. I thought that Vern was saying to her that they only had a couple months left and she was only supposed to be like seven months pregnant. I could be wrong on that. Well, they showed the baby. Did the baby look premature? Mm -hmm. It's pretty small. Um, the baby was huge, I thought, laying in that. <laughs> My daughter even said, good grief, look at the size of that newborn. It, like, filled up the whole little incubator thing it was in, the little container it was in. So, I don't know. But this is where Molly leaves and she goes to Lester's house. She realizes Lester's in there. He's not going anywhere. And um, Vern's not going anywhere either. We <clears throat> see Vern's puddle. Poor Vern. That just kills her when she walks in there. I cannot believe that's still there. Even though it's only been a week, I can't. That's hard to believe. Um, She finds the key under the mat. And this is another instance where probably you were mentioning that you think she might be breaking bad or something. Um, This stuff would be completely inadmissible. I don't know that she would do this like this. What do you think? Well, she is doing it like this. She's... Yeah, she's not building a case. She's just trying to find out as much as she can. She's not going to turn this in like, okay, I broke in and here's what I found. She's just finding out for herself. Right. But if somebody saw her do that, wouldn't that really be a problem? I mean, she parks in front of his house and she walks up to the door. There's nothing hidden. And then she's like disassembling his wall. Oh, did you notice? Because you had mentioned before how how Lester really struggled with that washing machine. Remember pulling it out? And Molly kind of goes in there and just kind of, she practically picks it above her head and spins it around as far as her interaction with it versus Lester's. Well, anyone could slide a washing machine a foot like that. On a concrete floor. The, The thing she did that was not believable, she unscrews the thing with a quarter or whatever, a coin. There's no way. That's going to be like a Phillips screw screw head. It's not going to work with a coin. But it kind of looked like it was hanging out anyway. Did you notice that? Like it had been opened? Still. You got to still unscrew it. You can't do it with a big quarter. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a guy thing. I'd, I'd take your word on that. Um, I thought she was going to find the hammer. What do you think? Yeah, I didn't know. It was kind of uh, interesting that she didn't find it. So you think Lester chucked it into a lake or something? I thought he put it back. Well, It fir- showed him put it back. Yeah, but he's had more chances to be there. Or I maybe guess. somebody else came and took it. Yeah, I don't know. I I thought she was going to find it. She played the suspenseful music. Like, she's going to find it, and then there's just nothing. And um, we hadn't seen anything. They haven't showed us anything other than Lester pulling it out, looking at it, and putting it back, which showed us then where he had put it. So, I don't know. I I thought she was going to find it, but... Maybe Ghost Serpent Wolf Malvo came in and took it and moved it. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. So we got to talk about this conversation between Malvo and Stavros as they discuss some religious things and some Malvo's own little parable. (laughs) What did you think about that? They're driving along after the store back to Stavros's house and they have time to talk. Yeah, and Malvo brings up the fact that it was the Romans who uh, burnt St. Lawrence alive and... uh, then he goes into, um, Stavros says that it was because he was a Christian 
St. Lawrence. And um, Malvo says he thinks it might be because the Romans were raised by wolves. And he goes into this whole, this huge empire, and, you know, they were raised by wolves. And what do wolves do? They hunt and kill. And there's no saints in the animal kingdom, only breakfast and dinner. So um, what, do you, what about the story about the girl and the Rottweiler and the 105-pound Rottweiler? The girl thought she was being cute, and the dog, like, climbed on her and started humping her. And and then it took somebody shooting the dog behind the ear to get it off of her. And I think this was Malvo's, like, pretty black parable. Because remember when Stavros found the money? He was or right before he found the money, he was, like, kneeling and on all fours on the highway praying to God and you could almost interpret like God was the Rottweiler that climbed onto him and has been been fucking with him his whole or or the devil or the devil maybe some some say the devil but he prayed and he got his answer but he was down on all fours when he did that I don't think that no I didn't take that at all this I, I took that completely different than that First of all, Stavros was like prostate on the ground. He was like laying, is that the right word? Flat on the ground when he was praying. He was like face down. It was more, much more, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. And the girl, I took that more as a, she was, she was tempting. She was playing with something that was stronger than she was. And I took that as a, as a warning to Stavros that he was playing with something that was stronger than he was, and the only way to stop this something stronger would be to kill it. And, of course, that would be Malvo, but Stavros didn't get any of that, because how would he? But that's how I took that. Well, I, I, I chose to see that maybe Malvo is the devil, and Stavros was this very religious guy who believed God answered all his questions and his, you know, all of his problems. But now he has all these plagues being brought upon him. And so Malvo is saying to Stavros, you, you asked for this and you got it and you thought it was good, but it's really bad. So it's, a, it's in a way, Malvo shooting God. He's like, he's like killing Stavros's belief in God, which is what the devil wants you to do, right? He wants you to, he wants to turn people off of the thinking and belief in God being a good thing. And he's kind of doing that by making this parable for Stavros that you asked for it, you got it, and you kind of got fucked by it, and here, I'll help you. I'll shoot this this thing that helped you slash hurt you and get it off of you. But see, Stavros, it was Stavros' fault. Stavros was given the money. It's not like God did anything bad to Stavros, and Stavros realizes that. Stavros is the one that didn't keep his end of the bargain, so to speak. He, and I don't think you can bargain with God, but God blessed him with something, and then he didn't do what he said he would do, and he feels the guilt of knowing that he was given something and didn't didn't live up to his part of what he had promised. And I think it's just the whole guilt thing is how he's feeling the, uh, the plagues come down on him and stuff like that. And of course, you know, you do have, have Malvo playing into that. You don't think, you don't think though that Starvos thinks God is punishing him for not doing what he said he would do back when he prayed for the money. 
Yes, I do think that's what Stavros so, is So saying. if that's true, if Star- if Stavros believes God is punishing him, I think Lauren, like like the dog punishing the girl, I think I think Lauren is saying, "I'll get, I'll relieve you of this. I can get this God mm-hmm. off no. of you." Well, that's I what I believe. Okay, <laughs> I mean that's okay. I guess I just I didn't see that at all. I don't think the dog was punishing the girl. I think the dog was acting on a on a natural urge with the girl. The dog didn't get the joke, is what Malvo actually says. Uh, the girl was joking. The girl was playing with something that was stronger than than she was, which was the urge of this beast was stronger than her uh, little giggly game that she wanted to play. And I think that we're seeing... I, I view Malvo as the dog... And Stavros as, you know, the uh the girl. the girl. Yeah, being being he didn't understand what he was getting into when he allowed Stavros in on this. Not that he thought it was a game at that time, but I think it was a warning to Stavros is all. So what did you think about Lauren sparing Gus's life by swerving? That was a weird three second scene. I think that was the first time that Malvo was taken aback. That was the first time we've seen him unsettled, I think, in this whole thing. I think he, I think anybody would kind of swerve. I don't know that he consciously thought, I'm going to swerve. You see somebody in a road and you're going to swerve away from them. But <clears throat> but then when he realized it was Gus, which I think he kind of did afterward, after he swerved, I think he was really taken aback. I think for the first time he felt like he might have underestimated Gus, maybe. And, of course, he recovers really quickly. But he, he, that's the first indication on his face that things aren't, aren't being played exactly by his plan. Maybe. Uh, this is where we're going to have another different interpretation though i think he sees gus he he recognizes gus he considers for a brief second and then he decides i'm not going to kill gus like almost he's like like he's a deity whether he's evil or good but he's a powerful he had the fate of gus in his hands he knew i think he knew it was gus he had his fate in his hands and then he then he decided to spare him why would he do that wonder i mean other than the fact that if you kill the deputy you're gonna have a lot of, uh, you know, police and stuff around. I mean, you have to answer for that. And that would be awfully coincidental if Frank Peterson was driving Stavros around. And But we already know he doesn't really care about the repercussions. He's, right. He needs Gus later on in this story for some reason to use him for something. Okay. I can buy that. You could certainly be right about that. Maybe he did uh, notice. I just took it as uh, anybody would swerve if you saw somebody in the middle of the road and in dark and the night and, you know, I don't know. So we get to Stavros' house and Stavros says goodbye to Lauren. He, like, fires him. Yeah, he gives him his pay or whatever and tells him he doesn't need him to come in the morning. Do we know anything about this pickup and what's going to happen and what's supposed to happen and any of that? Do we know any of that at this point? Uh, I don't know any of it. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember him telling us any of that. So when he tells him not to come, I'm, 
to the drop-off the next morning that he's kind of got it handled. I thought that was curious. Wouldn't you think he'd want him to come? Yeah, I don't know. You know, here he is thinking he's got it in his control, Stavros does, and he may be underestimating or overestimating himself, you know, overestimating his right. ability. He's he's screwing with that big dog, and he's not going to be able to handle it. But Gus is driving. He pulls back up at his house, and Molly calls, and he walks in talking to her, and they are going to meet the next day. They make kind of like a little uh, agreement to meet the next day when she comes up to look at Lester's car. Um and we see that Malvo has driven up, and he watches Gus walk in, and then he turns on his police scanner, and he's listening to, he kind of tunes it right to listen to Greta. That's who he was listening for. Yeah, he knows He knows now where Gus lives, and he knows about Greta because he heard her on the walkie-talkie that right. first time. Right. Um, so he's sitting there doing all this, and the neighbor uh, the rabbi neighbor guy, we'll call him a rabbi, I don't know if he is or not, but says uh, that he's not supposed to be there. And Malvo says he's exactly where he's supposed to be. And the guy doesn't leave it. This guy, we see at this point, it's a little bit stronger willed maybe than Gus because he knocks on the window again and he tells them um, that he's going to call the cops, he's neighborhood watch and all this. And uh, Yeah, what did you think about you're not supposed to be here? That was, to me, that was way more than just a literal line, like, you're not supposed to be in this neighborhood at this time of night. It's, it was like a, be gone, you devil, you know, devil be he gone. He did say it. He did say it like that at first. And then, of course, he kind of goes on to say, we have children here, uh, you know, and he kind of kind of softens that. But I definitely got that same impression when he first said it, because it was like, you're not supposed to be here. He didn't say you can't be parked here or what are you doing here? He said, you're not supposed to be here. So I thought the wording of that was pretty good. Who seems more power powerful to you, this guy or Malvo? Um, well, I think Malvo wins this round with him. Because I think he ends up scaring the guy when he ends up talking about how people don't always lock their windows or arm their windows, whatever, on on the second floor. So he's telling the guy almost that he knows where he lives. I don't know. He I knows. That was- yeah, Malvo knows the weaknesses of people and how they cut corners. And he, like he's the evil black that can seep in through the cracks people leave, you know, unattended. Well, and Malvo says, maybe I'm here to help because the guy says, we help one another. And Malvo says, well, maybe I'm here to help. And the guy says, no, you have black eyes. Yeah. What was that? Well, then the guy calls him a Se'erim, Se'erim, which is a goat demon. It's a supernatural evil spirit in Jewish Hebrew. Okay. I don't know how he said it. I can't remember how he said it, but it's spelled S-E- apostrophe i-r-i-m set arim and if you google it it's a goat demon it's the it's the evil looking man with a goat's head and he's all hairy and it looks really creepy and it's a supernatural evil spirit but this guy calls lorne set arim no you have black eyes you're trouble i'm going inside and i'm calling the cops which building the one with the jew bus outside there it is now the truth comes out. You know, 
Some people think you don't need alarms on second-story windows. Think they can save a few bucks, you know, and still be safe. Another way they save money is they don't hook up the alarm to the phone line. So the bell rings, but the cops don't come. Or they come, but only after the neighbors call. Which, um, if this community's tight, as you say, you know, just might be quick enough to save your life. Or your children's lives. Maybe. Say, Irene. And Lauren rolls up his window and drives away. Yeah, and the guy runs inside. The guy's like do you looking think, over his shoulder. Do you think naming the evil spirit makes it go away? Do you think that was the timing of that? Or did you attach any timing to that? I didn't. I didn't because I didn't even... I didn't have a closed caption on this, so I couldn't hear exactly what he said. So I wasn't sure that that was what what he even called him. But you would that I don't know. I don't know. And so we see Molly back with Bernard with Ida and Bernadette, and she's making a more formal visit this time and spending some right. time. Um, but she says something very cryptic too, like she tells Ida she's taking care of it. And Ida does not want to know the details. What do you think that meant? Um, I just kind of took it real literal that she had just had her baby and she wanted to focus on positive and happy things. I didn't really take that as anything other than, than that, that she wanted Molly to, uh, to still be working on it. She wanted Molly to get, get Vern's killer, but she didn't want to know. So you didn't, you didn't put anything more evil to it? Like she could be avenging Vern or maybe protecting oh, Ida? No, I didn't. But do you think she would think Molly would do that? Do we think Molly would do that? That's what I'm asking. I don't know. I don't know. They said it. Like, are you taking care of it? And they don't say it. Now, are you taking care of the house? Are you taking care of Vern's new, helping Vern's new boss? Are you paying special attention to the case? She just leaves it nebulous and and a little eerie, you know, a little threatening almost. I think it's a little eerie. I understand that we're supposed to be dealing with people who kind of keep their cards close to their chest and don't show a lot of emotion and everything. But I think we might be carrying that a little bit far with Ida here. That's if, if not, she is an incredibly strong woman. I mean, she's got the the hormones from the birth of a baby and she's still able to sit up in the bed when her husband's been dead a week and she's given birth to this child and smile and make kind of a, casual conversation about how Molly looks like a raccoon and I don't know, just this kind of thing. And Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think that the way that they poised it, posed it, poised it, the way that they positioned it, it made it look like it was a, had a meaning of some kind and we didn't, and it didn't resolve that meaning, meaning too clearly for us. Okay, it may have. So we see Molly look in on Lester, and we hear the heartbeat slash washing machine thump, thump as yeah, Lester. Yeah, that's what I heard that time. I heard a heartbeat in it that time, and that's exactly what I wrote down. 
have we heard that before? Because I don't remember hearing the heartbeat sound in it. Well, I think they blended the heartbeat with the washing machine together to make it kind of sound each, you know, each like the other. Okay. And the and the caption in the closed caption was heartbeat. So Okay. It's supposed to be a heartbeat sound. Okay. But I definitely heard the thump thump of the washer too in that. And Lester's pretending like he's asleep. It's like it's like he knew Molly was in the room. Do you think he could have seen her like in the glass or something? Is that what we're supposed to assume? Because remember, he's turned over to the other side and he's facing like a big picture window. And uh, Molly opens the door and there's a policeman outside the door. And she just stands there and she sees Lester laying on his side with his back to her. And his eyes are wide open. Maybe. I mean, if she if, if he could have seen her, she could have seen him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. And his eyes. But but he did close his eyes until she left. And then he opens his eyes again. Yeah. More avoiding whatever. Yep. <laughs> anyway, that was the end of it. Um, yep. Did you have any last thoughts on the six ungraspables? No, um, I think that it's really getting meaty now. I think we're, it was, um, there wasn't a lot of light moments in this except for Chum. And uh, they kind of tried to lighten it up maybe with the birth of Bernadette. But um, this was pretty deep. This was pretty dark stuff. It was pretty heavy. Any, and, any last thoughts on the meaning of the, par- of the Cohen or the meaning of the words, the six ungraspables? No, I, I honestly couldn't come up with anything about that that, that I was satisfied with. Yeah, it wasn't as clear. You couldn't just Google it and get the answer like the other ones. But the, <laughs> no, the, no. Buddhist, the Buddhist and religious meanings, I think, are the ungraspable. The graspables are the five senses in the mind. So the ungraspables are the invisible, the, that without sight or hearing, the things you can't touch or feel. But they're all there. They're all pervading. Like they're everywhere. They're omnipresent. Um, and it's like the source of all life is this ungraspable essence, you know? So I don't know what the six ungraspables are, but it was, it, it, this was a very religious episode. It had a lot of meaning that took a lot of effort to try to think about and figure, put it, put attachments onto each of these meanings and figure them out. There was definitely a lot of good versus evil in this. So... I don't know. I guess we'll see. All right. Well, that's it for episode five of Fargo. Episode okay. six next week is Buridian's ass. Buridan's ass. Who is that? Um, I don't know. Okay. We'll have to. You'll have to listen next week and find out, Michelle. Okay, I'll do that. All right. Well, I'll talk to you then. Okay. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.